Good morning. So good to be with you today as we uh, continue and conclude our series, Purify. Uh, we've been looking at this idea from 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. It's sort of a, a framework the last couple of weeks. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. See, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these are not from the Father, they are from the world, and the world and its desires are passing away. But those who follow the Lord or do the, the will of the Lord will endure forever. And so the first week we looked at what does it mean to purify our affections, not loving the world but to love God. And then last week we looked at Galatians, this idea of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, um, that we would not walk in the works of the flesh but walk by the fruit of the Spirit, that He would purify our actions. And then today taking that last little phrase of the boastful pride of life, praying that God would purify our boasting. And so we're going to be actually in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, verses 2 through 11. And as we think of this idea of the boastful pride of life, uh, I think about this story that sort of captured uh, the world uh, this, this past summer of uh, the Ocean Gate uh, submersible vehicle, the Titan, that went down and was going to go down to the depths to see the Titanic. If you remember this story, uh, unfortunately, that submersible vehicle imploded on itself because of the pressure of being underneath all that water. And as the story came more and more, what we found out is five people died because of what many called hubris or pride. Because the gentleman who was in charge of designing and paying for and leading these expeditions, a guy named Stockton Rush, had been told by many experts and engineers, and there were some loopholes that this type of submersible did not have to get certain certification, and he kept blowing by all the red flags of warning saying a cylindrical tube shape will not be able to sustain the force of the weight that far deep. And even on a previous trip into the Puget Sound in a much shallower water, things were not going well. There was creaking and cracking and the computer system wasn't working and the, uh, the ability to communicate to the surface broke down and they still pushed forward largely out of pride and hubris. And in the end, the proverb from the Scripture came true. In a tragic way, pride comes before destruction or a fall. And ladies and gentlemen, as we look at this idea of the boastful pride of life, do not be mistaken that it is equally as destructive as the works of of the flesh that we talked about last week, whether that be sexual sin or idolatrous sin or relational sin that has devastating effect, the boastful pride of life 
is also from the world and also can lead to destruction. And so with that, let's read Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. Paul is writing and he says this, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, or you could even read there, for we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in this passage, Paul is giving his testimony, and he is speaking about those things that he used to boast about to try to please God, and now how he counts those as rubbish and loss, and now he will only boast in Christ that he may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So let's unpack this for a few moments um, as we look at what does it mean to purify the boastful pride of life. Number one, consider the difference between holy and unholy boasting. The difference between holy and unholy boasting. In verse 2 and 3, Paul gives three sort of shots um, at the enemies of the church that he's refuting. He says they're dogs, they're evildoers, they're mutilators of the flesh. Now what's interesting is that Paul is writing about not the temple prostitutes, um, not the uh, false god shamans in the town. He is writing about those who are Judaizers, meaning those who are telling Christians, it's okay for you to accept Christ, but you also have to do all these things according to the law. And he says, beware of the dogs. Understand that the Jewish religious people called Gentiles dogs. And so Paul is flipping that term to a very religious group of Jewish people and saying, beware the dogs. And he says they are evildoers. Now look, these are some of the most religious, moral people. They are trying to keep God's Old Testament law. 
And he says they are evildoers. And why does he call them evildoers? Because they are promoting a works-based righteousness. And he says morality apart from Christ is still evil. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And what he's saying there is, is that they are asking Gentiles who at that time would not have been circumcised, that they need to be circumcised in order to be accepted by Christ. And Paul is saying they're a bunch of knife-wielding cutters, unholy boasting. So what is boasting? In your, in your outline, here's a definition I really like. It is exultant joy in what one is most proud about. Exultant joy in what one is most proud about. Sometimes we see, as a couple of examples, um, humble brags. Where someone appears to be humble, but they're really just very clever in how they are boasting in themselves. Uh, there's entire websites dedicated to collecting examples of humble brags. Um, I, I have a couple that I'll share with you. One, um, I, I don't have the picture and for obvious reasons, but it's a guy and he, the quote on his post is, I love this picture of my niece. But the picture is of him with his shirt off flexing. And yes, his niece is in the picture, but she is turned around, not even facing the camera. And she's sort of off to the side. It's like, really, you love that picture of your niece. And then somebody in the comments said, unless your abs, you gave the nickname niece. I don't understand this picture, right? It's, it's saying one thing but seeking to brag about something else. Um, how about this one? Um, a lady uh, boasted what she takes great pride in in a post. And it said, I can't believe I almost spilled my coffee on these $600 pair of shoes. Humble brag. Boasting. I want people to know I have $600 pair of shoes. That's, that's really the point of the post. Um, how about this one? Um, is, there's a lot of variations on this one, but something to the effect of a post of, I can't believe how often I get hit on every day. It's sort of like, man, I'm sharing my frustrations about how beautiful or handsome I am. And like there's another variation of a guy saying, um, every day someone comes up and tells me how beautiful my eyes are. And I'm just like, wow, how original. <laughs> right, like we all have this tendency within us to want to boast and to give exultant joy and to make sure other people know what we are most proud about. And if no one is acknowledging it for us, we will find ways to get it into the conversation. And it's unholy boasting. And Paul is saying these religious leaders are giving a, they're trying to boast in the law and circumcision. And yet Paul says in verse 3, but we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and boast or glorify in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, today this is really a message for those who love religion. 
but yet do not know Christ. It is for all the ways that we want to boast about our morality and religiosity, and yet it is apart from Christ. I remember when I was uh, teaching a seventh grade boys Sunday school class many, many years ago, and we were studying this idea of circumcision. I remember a seventh grade boy asking me the question that I was not prepared for as a college student, which was, what is circumcision? And I really didn't want to get into it with him. Um, And some of the other boys were snickering. And so I just said, after this, you need to just go home and ask your dad. And his dad was a, a doctor in town. And he said, but what if my dad doesn't know what it is? And I said, I promise you, your dad is going to know what it is. Now, I doubt that there's many in here that don't know what circumcision is, so I'm going to leave that there. You can ask your dad if you're still confused. (laughs) But maybe the significance of circumcision is lost on some, and that would be this. In Genesis 17, God made an outward symbol, an outward covenant, and said if the men will be circumcised, it will be a, a symbol, a signal, an outward right of an inward truth of my relationship with you. It is uh, later in the book of Romans, Paul would say it is now a symbol of the circumcision of the heart, a cutting of the heart as a symbol that we belong to Christ. And so this idea that they are mutilators of the flesh, from their mindset they're saying we are Old Testament faithful. You're, we're, we're not denying that Jesus is now a part of this. These enemies would say, but you also have to add on everything else, including circumcision. And Paul says, they're just mutilators of the flesh. We are the true circumcision. We have the true symbol of the covenant that we have a heart that is circumcised before God. We worship in spirit and we boast in Christ, not any external factor. See, at this time, the Jews had lost sight of the symbol of circumcision and had begun to make it a pride, an ethnic pride and boast about why they were close to God. And Paul says, we have no confidence in anything we can do. We only boast in what Christ has done. And if you're here today and you have a religion but not a relationship with Christ, I am telling you, you need to have a circumcision of the heart. See, the insight is this. If self-reliant boasting is empty and evil, then boasting in Christ is holy worship. We need our boasting purified, removing boasting in the flesh and boasting in him, which leads me to number two, reconsider what is a worthy topic of boasting. We need to reconsider what is a worthy topic of boasting. So Paul says, here's the enemy. We are the true circumcision. We boast in Christ, not in the flesh. And then he says, for if anyone thinks that they could boast in the flesh, If there's anyone out there who thinks that they have made themselves right before God through personal action, he says, I would be at the front of the line of being able to boast about that. And then he gives um, a number of qualifications. 
He says, basically he says, I'm an eighth dayer, which means in the Jewish circle that his parents had him as a young boy. He was circumcised on the eighth day at the day that they were designated to. He's like, I've already got that out of the gate. I'm not boasting in that. He says, I am an Israelite by birth, meaning I have all the rights, all the rights of the covenant. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, to be fair, um, I've often wondered why is that a, uh, to use a, the kids' terminology, a flex. <laughs> why is that something to be proud about, being in the tribe of Benjamin? Well, he, here's a couple things that people think why that would be um, such a, a, a brag, if you will. Number one, Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. He's one of the two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. The first king of Israel, Saul, who Paul was named after, if you recall, he was Saul, was a Benjamite. The temple and Jerusalem were in the territory designated to Benjamin. Benjamin remained, and that tribe remained faithful to the house of David when the monarchy split. And after the exile, Benjamin was one of two tribes that came back to reestablish um, themselves in the promised land. And therefore, because of the exile and everything else, a lot of Jewish people were not able to trace their lineage. And so Paul is saying, I actually am able to still trace which tribe I belong to. And it is a worthy and esteemed tribe, so from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he means by this is even though he grew up in Tarsus outside of Jerusalem, he's saying, I was not um, impacted by the culture of the Greeks. I'm not a Hellenist Greek or a Hellenist Jew. He's saying, we still, I learned Hebrew. My parents taught me Hebrew. I learned how to read the scriptures in Hebrew. I knew all the traditions. He said, I'm as Hebrew as it comes, even in the middle of a Greek culture. Then he says, in terms of religion, I was a Pharisee. Now look, when we've read the Gospels, the Pharisees are always not in a good light. But Paul mentions Pharisee in the way that most of the people that day would have understood it, which is, one of the most adherent to the law. It was actually something very esteemed and admired. It was only Jesus coming in to say, they are so caught up in religion, they are missing who religion pointed to, which was Jesus himself. He says, I was a Pharisee, the most strict. Not only did I keep the law of, the, of Moses, there were all these man-made laws to keep us from even getting close to breaking a law. And I keep all of those as well. He says, as to zeal, I persecuted the very church that I'm a part of right now. The reason that that is um, sort of a, a boast is it was a boast. It was a good thing to have such a zeal to preserve your heritage, to preserve your community, to preserve your faith. And he's saying, I was so zealous for the way of these Judaizers at one point, I even persecuted the church. He said, in terms of righteousness, according to the law, I was blameless. Blameless. What, what he means there is you can go and you can ask anyone whether they have found a way in which I have been unrighteous. According to the law, he goes, I dare you to find one. You won't find one. 
Now, that may make us think, well, what, what do you mean he's blameless? He's blameless to an external standard. But when he met Jesus, he realized, I am good morally, but I'm not good because I actually met good on the road to Damascus. One of the quotes as I was studying this week, I love this. In your notes it says this, the blinding light of Damascus paradoxically opened Paul's eyes to see everything clearly and in the right perspective. Though he became physically blinded on that road, the eyes of his heart became wide open and everything made sense to where Paul could say all this, the spiritual resume he just laid out, the very thing that the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh were trying to get these Gentiles to do. He said, I did all of that perfectly and now I count it loss. He said, I counted it loss, I count it loss, and knowing Christ has made me even double down more to say that it is actually rubbish. That word rubbish is used one time in the entire Bible. And I'm too scared to even give you the true um, equivalent because it means the strongest term for dung. He's saying everything that I used to consider, which you consider religious and according to the law externally, all of that I now say was rubbish, dung, compared to knowing Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, as we, as we think about our standing before God. Will you stand before God and give a spiritual resume like Paul? Taught Sunday school, served as a door greeter at Harmony Hill, read my Bible. Externally, you couldn't find anybody that said I was not a moral person. And yet Paul would say, that is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Which brings me to number three this morning. Consider what it means to truly know Christ. Consider what it means to truly know Christ. In verse 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11, it says, that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ, Paul says, and to know the power of his resurrection. Just before that in verse 9, Paul says, that I now have a righteousness from God, not of my own. That I would know Christ and be found in him. To be found in Christ is to say that he takes our sin, our who we are that is so fallen short. And because of trust in Christ, we go into him. We are found hidden in him so that the righteousness of Christ is then applied to us. 
He says, I now have a righteousness apart from the law, apart from religion, apart from external morality. I have a righteousness given to me by Christ. And that is the reason, he says, I boast in Christ alone and I have no confidence in the flesh that I may know the power of his resurrection. Now, this verses 10 and 11, you may or may not be familiar with this, but um, there are, uh, in, in biblical writing, you will often see something called a, a chiastic structure. And that comes after the Greek word or the Greek letter that looks like our X. And the idea here is that there's something stated, then a second thing stated, then the second thing is repeated, and then the first thing is repeated. And so it sort of creates this sandwich. And so in verses 10 and 11, you can see it there. Um, in verse 10, that I may know the power of his resurrection. You could label that sort of A for those that follow like poetry and stuff like that. And then B, that I may know the suffering, suffering of his death. And then B again would be becoming like him in his death. And then A again, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now the reason that they do this is to bring sort of a point um, and, and to highlight a truth. And so what he's essentially saying is this. When I know the power of his resurrection, I will attain to the resurrection from the dead. My righteousness found in Christ, not in my flesh, I will know that power because I will be resurrected in the same way. But in the middle of that, how do you receive that? By sharing in his suffering and becoming like him in death. In your notes, it says this. Resurrection power does not become available to us until after the death of our own boasting. In order to have resurrection power, Jesus had to die. And in the same way, Paul is saying for you and I, if we want to attain the resurrection and experience that resurrection power, we must die to ourselves. We must, as we talked about last week, crucify the flesh and its desires. And in this passage, crucify and put to death our own spiritual resume as dead. And then only then, when there is death, can there be resurrection power. Only then can we be awakened from death of our own boasting to life in and only in Christ. It reminds me when I was um, a teenager, uh, sometimes our youth group would go to various sort of uh, evangelism programs. Um, there's, there's still some today. I think there's even one here in the Lufkin area. It's called they, they got Judgment House or a Hell House or something like that where you go in and they are telling a story and the various people end up dying in that story and some will go to hell, some will go to heaven, and you're walking through the church. And all that to say, I just remember at the very end of that program, you sort of walk out of the heaven scene and then you go into a scene where they have someone who's going to confront you with the gospel and the decision to make a, uh, a decision for Christ. And they said this statement, 
They would say this, if you were to go to heaven today, and they were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, first off, just understand this. You will not get that question. Um, the, the judge, Jesus, will just separate sheep and goat, those whom he knows and them, those who he don't, doesn't know. Um, and so there's, there's not going to be an opportunity for anyone with a silver tongue to try to outwit God. But... The point is this, it is a question that is worth thinking about. Why should I let you into heaven? Did you know that the number one question, or the number one answer to that question is typically something in the area of, I'm a good person. I mean, hands down, when you ask people that question, I'm a good person. Person, or they'd say, maybe even try to humble us. I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anybody. I pay my taxes on time. Um, I've been faithful to my wife. I, you know, I, I've provided. I'm a good person. Some would even throw in, I'm a good person and I've been going to church since I was a kid. Still an insufficient answer. Some would even add on top of that, well, I've been going to church and I was baptized. Still an insufficient answer. See, every world religion outside of Christianity seeks to weigh out whether we were good enough to some external standards or not. Only Christianity says you cannot, you will not be able to be good enough for the holiness of God. You can boast all day long in your spiritual resume of external deeds and it will be insufficient. It is only when we boast in Christ, His death, burial, resurrection that then applies his righteousness to us, that we are found in him, that we know him, that we will attain to the power of his resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. And while there will be no question, those who are found in Christ, if we were to stand before the Lord today, he would say, I know you. Amen. And so the question really comes down to this. Those in the room, those watching online, what are you boasting in? And if it's anything other than Christ, would you come to the point where you would say that was rubbish? And anything compared to Christ is rubbish. And I will put my faith in Christ. Stacy, if you would, come on up. We're going to have a, a time of being able to respond. I want to encourage you. If you're boasting in anything other than Christ today, would you consider accepting him as Savior, repenting of sin, trusting him, trusting his work, not anything of your own, 
And if you'd like to talk to somebody about that, I'll be up here singing this next song. You can go to the Next Step desk. Or if you came with a believer here today, talk to them at lunch. Go over to their home and let them know that you're struggling and wanting to understand how to boast in Christ, not in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth that our external obedience is a loss. Lord, there is nothing that we can boast about in our own lives that can gain the attention of heaven. But thank you that you sent Christ, that we may boast in him, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection power. Father, for those of us who belong to you, we rejoice and glorify the name of Christ for our salvation. And God, I do pray a prayer right now for those that the Holy Spirit may be working on even in this moment. Do not let pride win out in their life, Father. May they see the glory, the surpassing value of knowing you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.